<laughs> um, it's your first time in Australia, of course. Yes. Um, I, uh, I was supposed to come on three separate occasions, and each time something catastrophic happened at the last moment that prevented it. And I was certain I wouldn't make it this time, so I'm completely unprepared. Um, there was no need to write anything because I was never going to get here. So, so bear with me. So, um. so as you know, um, what we've done is constructed these not as talks, which would have been too exhausting anyway, I think, for David, but as conversations. And. Um, uh, David and I have already done a series of conversations, as probably you know, on Gregory of Nyssa, and this will follow uh, the same pattern. Now, um, I, I used to, um, profe my profession was designing what we called strategic conversations. And uh, when I designed a conversation, uh, I was really designing not a listless wandering, but an argument something that would go and develop. And uh, so what, what uh, some of you already got, but others can get later, is, that, is this single page, which uh, really is like the run sheet of, a, of, a, of the developing conversation. Uh, there are five modules in it, so that we always design our inquiries around what we call the focusing question. And the focusing question is, you know, Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, what does it mean to be a human being? Which a lot of people, including some theologians I really admire, think this is the big question of the age. So the way the architecture will flow, and I'll repeat this tomorrow, is the first module is really confronting, let's say, the large secular question, is the mind a machine? Um, in other words, are we really nothing more than the accumulation of biochem biochemical or electrical impulses. That, that's all we are. And um, that's tonight's, is the mind a machine? And then the four modules tomorrow will, will develop. They will, they will grow, um, really to a kind of a Wagnerian <laughs> climax. Um, all the light motifs will be interwoven. They will. They will, David. Um, then I'll do Siegfried's death So we actually begin the second module tomorrow morning with the question of, essentially, has the Christian church dropped the ball on its anthropology? Has, mis has the doctrine of the image of God become a kind of a misanthropic vision of what it means to be a human being, i.e. totally depraved, sinful. So that will be the module we'll investigate tomorrow. And um, in each of the modules, or lots of them, we'll be using a lot of David's uh, knowledge to dive into one of the great patristic thinkers, although the one that we'll dive into in the morning is not technically patristic, Nicholas of Cusa from the 15th century. And then the other modules will build on that, and the final module, the last one, the fifth module, will actually explore the stunning 
doctrine, concept, theme of the patristics, that the end of all humanity is deification or the theosis. It's, uh, in, in one sense, just sheer orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy. In another sense, it's like too dangerous an idea to take seriously. So since D David is such a shrinking violet and doesn't like offending anyone, we thought he would be the right guy to uh, investigate this with. So that's tomorrow. But tonight we will begin with uh, what does it mean to be a human being? And is the mind a machine? Um, and some of these, as uh, I, I thought, it'd be nice to begin with a poem because uh, too often these questions just slip away to philosophy, theology, cognitive science. David and I both like this poem, which is on the mind and on thinking. And um, it's by W.B. Yeats, and it's called The Long-Legged Fly. I'll just read it out. It's a celebration to the, the contemplative mind and how it changes the world through three scenarios. That civilization may not sink its great battle lost, quiet the dog, tether the pony to a distant post. Our master Caesar is in the tent where the maps are spread, his eyes fixed upon nothing, a hand under his head. Like a long-legged fly upon the stream, his mind moves upon silence. That the topless towers be burnt and men recall, this is Helen of Troy, and men recall that face Move most gently, if move you must, in this lonely place. She thinks, part woman, three parts a child, that nobody looks. Her feet practice a tinker shuffle picked up on the street. Like a long-legged fly upon the stream, her mind moves upon silence. Then he moves to Michelangelo, the last one. That girls at puberty may find the first Adam in their thought, shut the door of the Pope's chapel, keep those children out. There, on that scaffolding reclines Michelangelo, with no more sound than the mice make, his hand moves to and fro. Like a long-legged fly upon the stream, his mind moves upon silence. It's a good poem, isn't it, David? Yeah, Yeats was no uh, uh, hack. Um, it's very late Yeats, too, so, which was his best period. So. We might come back to that, but um, um, let's now dive into tonight um, and the idea of the Mind as a machine, of course, the spread of artificial intelligence with ChatGPT has uh, accelerated the proposition that the mind is only a brain, and furthermore, it's it's a mechanical, biomechanical organ. So every thought and feeling, every experience that we might call thinking, including the ones Yates talked about, 
can actually eventually be translated down to physical processes in the brain. And uh, even the thought that I love you equally can be uh, translated back to uh, the mechanics of the brain, much like the lungs can explain uh, our breathing in so in, in that way the brain's mechanics will account for thought. Now the degree to which anyone really 100% believes that, as David will tell us some do, but even if we don't fully believe that, it's in the, it's in the atmosphere, it's in the air, this kind of pollution of that idea. David um, has long been fascinated one way or another with the mind um, and David you are you have written a book on the mind can you just tell us um, when it's coming out do you know yet what its title will be um, well the title is usually the last thing uh, I mean at the moment the manuscript is just called psyche because uh, the, the goddess or the human being who became a goddess psyche is 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 a is a figure that runs through it because, of course, it, psyche in Greek means both mind and life. And the argument of the book is that mind, life, and language are all one and the same irreducible phenomenon. Um, but it's it's uh, it's finished. Uh, Yale will it will bring it out. Usually, it takes about ten months. So, I imagine it'll be in the spring catalog of 2024. And interestingly, when we were talking about the book um, the other day, you said, like, well, not halfway through, but after, after you're right, you're worried it was going to be too much of a treatise. You've re, you reconfigured it as a dialogue. Do you want to just mention that? Yeah. Well, you just did. I know. That. I mean, uh, there's not a much more to say. Dialogue between who, David? Yeah. Um, it, it, the uh, I don't know. Most of these large uh, volumes on philosophy of mind are written by. Uh, people like David Chalmers or Daniel Dennett or whatever, uh, do they sell, but I don't know how many people read them uh, front to back. They end up, I think the real, the, the real purpose is to sit on the shelves in the background of Zoom meetings. Uh, you know, so it was, oh, isn't he bright? He, was, uh, he reads philosophy. You know. um, uh, so I was writing a, another ponderous treatise on this. I mean, it would have been more readable. I mean, the prose would have been livelier because <laughs> I am a good writer. But the uh, the thing is, it really, I wanted, um, I, I just was finding it um, needlessly tedious. I realized, of course, the, uh, the ancient practice of writing uh, dialogues from Plato onward through Cicero and Seneca and as a, uh, and right up into the 18th century with figures like Hume and Barclay, uh, or 17th and 18th centuries, Barclay and Hume, if we get that right. Um, there's a reason for that, and so I, re I rewrote it as a, as, a, as a long platonic dialogue, 530 pages of platonic dialogue, and it has four figures in it, psyche, the, the, the gods, you see, have retreated to the Epicurean intermundia, but they keep an eye on things down here and they argue about things like whether there's a transcendent God and uh, what's going on on earth and, and the and psyche, Hermes and Eros all in different ways argue for the reality of, of mind and spirit and God and their, their antagonist is Hephaestus who was the God who created the first automata 
if you know the myth. So, I'm, 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 the reason I'm going on at such length is this is a promotional tour for me too. <laughs> I'm trying to make. So. Well, uh, speaking of which, there are books out the front, and hopefully, David, at the end, some you might be willing to sign some books oh, for yeah. some people. Yeah. So the, the topic of mind is clearly vital. Have you always been interested in it? There are people um, there, David. There are, yeah. I mean, all I can hear, the lights are very bright. I'm sorry, have I always been interested in Well, no, uh, well, yeah, I mean, no, as much as anyone is, I think we're all uh, interested in the mystery of consciousness. It is, every once in a while, we, we, I'm sure we've all brought ourselves up short and realized that this is very strange. You know, uh, how is it that I have this intimate inward experience, uh, subjective experience um, at all times, and what is it to be a conscious being, and is this really something that makes sense, you can make sense of purely in material terms. So I've always had that interest, but um, the more I, I, over the years, have realized that philosophy of mind is the, so to speak, final frontier of the materialist project. Um, the me mechanistic philosophies, unconquered Everest, um, the more the topic has come to interest me because it really is an intractable problem for sheer physicalism and has generated some of the most bizarre philosophical arguments imaginable and, the, and, and one has to ask why. Yes. Uh, it, what interested me about it was not how per persuasively uh, anyone had argued for, for, for a purely physical reduction of the mind or uh, any other materialist account. It was how far philosophers were willing to go in embracing what looked to me like sheer nonsense in order to do this. Um, and uh, so, yeah, no, I think that the philosophy of mind is is the place where we can reconstruct the whole modern history of uh, the triumph of mechanism in our thinking uh, as a metaphysics of nature, life, world. It, it touches on other things, what life is, how life, uh, whether life is reducible to purely mechanistic causes. Um, but, but at the end of the day, it has proved to be the point at which we, you know, the place of recurring impasse. Uh, at the moment, well, this is the last thing I'll say, say to that question. The, the question of mind has become particularly acutely interesting for two reasons. One is because there's been such successful demolition of most of the theories of mind, materialist theories of mind, to the point where what we're left with are extreme options. And the other is because more and more it's become a pervasive uh, cultural notion that the mind is a kind of digital computer. And this to me, and, and you just see it all the time, you see it in science fiction programs, it's just taken for granted that, that thought is somehow a kind of code and computation that could be downloaded onto a virtual pro, uh, platform and that, that it's something in addition. To, well, let me say, Tony, what, one imprecision in your introduction, if I if you, if you wouldn't hate me for calling attention to it. 
is that there are actually two kinds of materialist accounts of mind that, that you kind of conflated when you talked about the lungs being a machine for breathing and the mind being a machine for thinking. These are two different ideas. I mean, it's someone like John Searle, who was quite brilliant, would have taken the former. So I said that thought, if ultimately when we reduce it to its, its it, to, when we figure out how thought works, we'll understand that it's like bile. It's just generated naturally. It's something that, that, that has a physiological source. But the, the re, uh, and that's an implausible program for any number of reasons. The real, the really uh, stark alternative to that in the world of, of philosophy of mind, of materialist philosophy, is the computational model, where, no, the brain is just a platform. It's not even intrinsically related to thought. It's a platform that started as a, an organ for translating stimulus into response. It developed into a syntactical engine that can then run any number of programs on it so that your thought, as just pure code, is detachable from that and can be run on another platform as well. And these are two actually opposed visions. Each one, what's good about it is that Searle is absolutely devastating in his attack on the computational uh, model of mind, whereas Dennett, one thing he gets right, he's absolutely devastating in his attack on the physiological. So they destroy each other. They, yeah, they're, it's wonderful to pose them against each other. Uh, Searle is the better behaved. It was. De Dennett, you know, was rather spiteful. But whatever the case, yeah, their arguments are wonderful counterfoils to one another. So there's a, there's a lot in that. If I could just ask you to, I'm going to pick out a couple of concepts and ask if you could just expand them for us. I mean, you talked about the materialist project, um, which uh, I'd like you to just, could you just summarise what, what that means, the materialist project, uh, a brief history of that, that, that at, at the end of which the mind is the machine, as you said, is the last frontier of it. Yeah, well, it's, it's the last frontier because it was also the first frontier. Um, the modern materialist vision, I mean, there were always radical materialisms. Every, every great philosophical culture generates them. And uh, Democritus's atomism and um, Epicureanism in a different way uh, had philosophies of, of um, you know, of, well, I'd say materialism, not in our sense, but in the modern sense, it's part of an ideology that expressed itself in a new method for the sciences in the 17th century, the mechanistic philosophy, which seems innocent enough, and it was in, in practice at first, which was simply that we should subtract from our picture of nature everything that we understand as being as the, uh, that the mind imposes on it, which means subtracting from nature everything mental. Because if you look at the older picture, the Aristotelian, what we th think of as Aristotelian causality, it's not really a theory of causality. It's not about physical forces. I mean, a final cause is not like a, a traction that pulls something forward from the future. A formal cause isn't actually a, a stamp of, you know, of, of physical force. Rather, this is a logic of predication, which says that the structure of nature is like the structure of mind. 
uh, you know, that what you can say about nature conforms to what the mind can perceive in nature because it has an analogous uh, logic. There are purposes in nature, there are real forms in nature, uh, as well as, as, as physical impulses. Right? Well, anyway, in the modern period, it was all with this, if this way uh, to understand nature without presuming anything of the sort would be to look at discrete processes as if they were just machine processes and try inductively to understand them. And this is very useful, I and mean, it's why we have modern medicine, is that we can, we can abstract what we're looking at from any larger set of questions. But, we're doing, but that's what we're doing, we're bracketing it out. Um, you know, you look at a process in the, in the physiology of, a, uh, of the arm, you're trying to make sense of it mechanically. What you're not asking yourself is how it fits into an organic system of life. So you've already stopped to think of it, ceased thinking of it as an organic system, as a living thing, and thought of it just as an arrangement of machine processes. This means subtracting from your, your, your picture of nature everything mental. Problem with this is there are many problems with this. One is that it's impossible to do absolutely. Induct pure induction doesn't exist in any of the sciences. It certainly doesn't exist in the life sciences. When we look at a biological, or when we look at anything in the realm of biology, in order to understand it, one of the first questions we ask is, "What is it for?" You know. So we're always presuming a kind of final causality methodologically, even though we're denying it metaphysically, so, and there's no reason to assume. But nonetheless, okay, the mechanical philosophy at first is embraced, and this leads to, obviously to what was already emerging in, in, the, in the scientific language of the time, but also the philosophical language, a real dualism, and say, well, nature is mechanical, but as yet there was no need to deny that there's such a thing as the soul or mind or God simply say that that's a radically different kind of substance, a thinking rather than an extended substance in Cartesian terms. But, or, you know, or Galileo's world was, you know, the real world of physics is the sort of qualityless world of pure mass and force and motion. You can examine it as a machine, but Galileo believed in the soul. He was actually quite a devout Catholic despite that little contretemps he had with the Pope. They didn't get along. That's what really happened, by the way, to Galileo. It was a kind of clash of personalities. But anyway, um, but then, of course, the sciences, to their credit, perhaps, can't tolerate a dualism. They want to know the reason for everything. So, of course, what began as a method became a metaphysics, this sort of this method of mechanism became a metaphysics of all reality. Maybe really, you know, the mistake is, you know, you put on rose-colored spectacles in order to be able to see something and you slowly come to the conclusion that the world really is a pink. Uh, and this is what happened with the mechanistic philosophy. It, it, it metastasized into this is the truth about nature. So then it had to account for things like mind in mechanistic terms, but the problem is mechanistic terms exist only as the denial of mental properties within the picture of nature that's being presumed. So it becomes an impossible 
impasse. It, it's there at the beginning and it's there at the end. We've never solved it because mind will not conform itself to terms of simple mechanical cause and effect, force, motion, exchange of energy between mindless things. That's what a machine is. If it has intentionality, it's not intrinsic to itself. It's been imposed by a designer. You take a machine apart, you can put it back together and it starts working. You take your brother apart, put him back together. Curiously enough, it doesn't work. He doesn't function anymore. <laughs> something, something different is going on. So, if I could, I mean that's that's very rich, David. Um, I just wanted to respond that what you said was that the science, the scientific project, um, metastasized. It, it's a method. Empiricism is a method of study that has metastasized into a philosophy or into a metaphysics. It's out, it, it, yeah. it can exp as you were talking about the mechanics of the hand, I was watching your hand, actually, and a, a surgeon or a scientist could explain somewhat the mechanics, bone structure, tendons that were making your hand do whatever it was doing they could never explain, I thought, two things. Number one, your hand is clearly gesturing to make points. There are purposes driving as to why your hand was doing what it was doing, which you would call the final cause, perhaps. Yeah. And equally, um, because I think we all do this, when there's a kind of a kinesthetics um, about what your hand was doing, a formal cause. You were shaping, you, you were actually in your mind were shaping. and the mechanics of the bone structure of the hand could never explain those things. It's, it, it's a subset of a far bigger game. Yeah. But the ideal of those, uh, say, reduction, of physical reductionism, those who really still metaphysically adhere to the mechanistic philosophy, even if they know that, say, in both physics and, well, in physics especially, that pure mechanism has to be qualified now, especially by quantum well, we, what we call quantum mechanics, so it's not even really a mechanics. Nonetheless, metaphysically, they're still, they, they, they still adhere to this, this mechanistic picture, and they would want to reduce all of that to purely physical explanations, including what seems to be my intrinsic intentionality to do something. The reason intrinsic intentionality is a problem, of course, is because it means doing something for a purpose. And final causality, that is purposiveness, is the one thing, is the first thing that was excluded from the mechanistic philosophy. Um, How was that? How was final causality excluded? Because a machine does not intrinsically act according to a purpose. It may serve a purpose, but the purpose doesn't come from itself. Doesn't come from the if machine. If it's purely mechanistic, purely physical, then at, at base, what seems like intention can be reduced to purely non-intentional physical causation. Otherwise, we have to posit some original mind in all things or above that, that lies behind the seeming purposiveness or the real purposiveness. So if nature is a machine, intrinsic intentionality is not part of nature. Well, if then nature is supposed to explain mind, which is always seems to be intrinsically intentional, 
then it has to explain the intentionality away. And that, as you're talking, reminds me, of course, of Vico's penetrating critique of Descartes, where he said, um, I thought, tellingly, uh, the only way to understand any system is not by its operations, but by its purpose. By its purpose. By its pur and the only one who understands the purpose of any system is the person who made it, who's outside right. of the system. Right, and of course Vico, of course, Vico uh, Jean-Baptiste Vico, one of the great and often forgotten minds of his time, uh, made this a general epistemological rule that you can, you can only know through creating what you know. So we, we know only what we make, and so we can only know things as made. Um, but yeah, and uh, the, 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 of course, Descartes then becomes, as it were, a, a sort of liminal figure in the history of modern Western thought because he detaches mind from, I mean, uh, from, from mechanism and allows both their own spheres of operation. The ancient world didn't have a notion of mechanical nature. The reason nature is what it is is because the same principle, let's call it psyche, the same principle that is mind is a principle of life. And nature itself, uh, rather than being a, a machine that's somehow uh, mystically haunted by, by mind, which is disembodied, instead nature itself is shaped, has the structure of, lives, and is, and is entirely pervaded by a spiritual principle of some kind. Uh, this is all very new. This notion of 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 of, of living things, or even matter itself, is essentially mechanical in nature. Doesn't really appear, even even when the term mechanism was used prior to the 17th century by certain thinkers in, uh, say, say the the, uh, the 15th century British monk Thomas Bradwardine. There, there the word is just being used in a very bland, formal way, not to mean that nature really is a machine, but that there, that there is a kind of predictable mathematical quality to such things as momentum and force. It's really only in the time of Descartes that anyone actually proposes that, that nature actually has a mechanistic structure, that at base it's purely physical. So, Amazingly, or purely materially, physically, uh, yeah. yeah. We, of course, are living, therefore, in what what we think is a universal view of reality. I mean, I think we're all infected by it. We all fight against it. Let's could I call it objectification of nature. Whereas what you're saying, this is a fairly recent project in human history that began with with uh, the dualism of Descartes, who was a Christian, of course. I don't think he intended. Oh, well, Galileo was a Christian. Descartes was a Christian. Even Bacon was a Christian, if a really horrible human being. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but this, whereas... <laughs> As we know, there are no, you know, we Christians generally aren't horrible human beings. So. <laughs> We, that's, that's why we convince everyone of the truth of the gospel, because we're all so saintly. Thank you, David. Um, so, Well, uh, I, that's my project. Whereas for the medieval, the ancient, the classical world, they simply 
viewed all of nature as having a spirit psyche that was animating yeah. and uh, in a way that we, f we would have to grasp towards. Um, before we leave this idea of uh, thinking as being a um, mechanical process, you mentioned computer science and you mentioned yeah. this apparently, um, you know, machines can think because computers can compute. Um, and there seems to be, I think, I think you, you call this like a, a, the folly of narcissists. Because I can represent something that way, therefore that reflexes back and tells me I'm made that way, which is... Yeah, no, well, yeah, it's, I, I call it the, the, not narcissism, which is something else, but the narcissism fallacy that... I mean, we I, we all know the, the the myth of Narcissus, right? The the young Boeotian hunter who is so so extraordinarily beautiful and so extraordinarily stupid. At the point that's very important too. Well, according to Ovid, he had he had rejected the love of the nymph Echo, so the goddess Nemesis, to punish him, uh, condemned him to fall in love with someone who could not reciprocate his love. And so his stupidity and his beauty uh, actually were, were the vehicles she used to destroy him because he saw his reflection in a pond uh, in the woods and was so enchanted by the beauty there that he fell in love with the image and imagined there was someone there and uh, just perished, you know, vanished away, turned into a narcissus, a daffodil bending over with a golden, or a bound bend, bending over the water. That used to happen a lot. Um, we, I mean, we do that with our computers. The computers, uh, more and more, we've created a technology that so perfectly uh, mimics our, the intentionality of the coding we put in and seems to operate autonomously, though obviously it doesn't. It operates always within the constraints of the code that we, we fancy we see a real agency there and we impose it on this, you know, oh well, you know, maybe this is what thought is. But then of course, it's also a research, it's, it, we then reverse the error of narcissism and go one, one step further. Uh, we don't just see ourselves reflected uh, in, in something that's actually lacking an agency and think there's an agent there. We then see ourselves as being only what, what, what's, what we perceive there, only a shadow or a ghost uh, that in itself is not really an agency in any meaningful sense. This is what's happened uh, at least in recent years. More and more theorists uh, propose that not just that, that digital computers might become conscious, but rather that all conscious beings are really just digital computers. So they're really... It's, so it's a different kind of dualism, basically. It's, it's a mechanized Cartesianism now. So. Yes, and they're saying that within the brain, as you were talking, it did remind me of still the analogy of a computer where you can get a platform on top of which you build a code, um, and the code is different to the computer platform. Right. Um, and that it just struck, strikes me as you were talking that they're applying that analogy to, to thought. The, um, and I, 
And of course, the explosion of you know, ChatGPT has made it look like, uh, because it's artificial intelligence that it can quite unquote learn, um, that indeed um, the mind is a, you know, a big computational en engine. Um, I think that, uh, by the way, in terms of chat GPT, just uh, some of you might know I happen to be the chairman of an artificial intelligence company. Um, uh, I know nothing about it, which qualifies me to be the chairman. Um, he's, he's part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. We are, however, uh, developing some of the most advanced uses of chat GPT of anyone. Um, and it's quite fascinating to watch. And uh, I think all that's happening with chat GPT is that traditional computer, um, the representation of thinking in traditional computers has followed a left-brained concept of thinking, very linear, um, reductionist. And that creates very complicated code that in fact can't handle complex things. It takes a huge amount of time to maintain, which is why big uh, software companies like it, because they make so much money um, um, adapting it for their clients. ChatGPT is really, the flip is, it's um, more like what we used to call spider diagrams. It's actually, it's actually cottoned onto right brain thinking, which works via association and language, not by numbers. So one way to understand the ChatGPT large language models is they're just working on a better picture of the brain than what for 50 years the computer industry's been doing. Um, but nonetheless, it's still, um, it's a mechanism, it's just a smarter one. Um, David, before we leave this whole area. It's a mechanism, it's a more smartly designed one. It's a more smartly designed one, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I think we, I would like to get your passing comment on transhumanism, which seems to be, take the mechanism of mind to sprinkle a bit of hope on it and um, take its assumptions and lo and behold, the machines will surpass humans. What, what's your view of this transhumanism project? Well, well, it depends on which aspect of transhumanism you mean. You mean the, um, the, the notion of uh, uh, mechanical prostheses and then ultimately the mechanization, you know, downloading consciousness. Well, I mean, this, uh, the, the notion of downloading consciousness, I just think, is a category error because, of course, uh, I don't know why anyone imagines that code and consciousness can be the same thing. I mean, it's, it's uh, code obviously operates through a very modular uh, system with few connections, and what what code does at the mechanical level is simply use mechanical notation of a certain kind in order to bring about effects whose content and intentional meaning and the consciousness thereof all occurs outside uh, the realm of, 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 these, of these processes. Um, uh, the, uh, what's going on in a computer? Well, you know, there's an old uh, John Searle whom I mentioned earlier, one of his famous arguments against mind being reduced to 
computation was to prove that simply possess was to argue that simply possessing the syntax of a function that is because people like Dennett would say that that what the brain is is a syntactical engine uh, that goes from translating stimulus into response and then a different kind of software comes to be run on it that has semantics meaning or seeming meaning for him it's everything's apparent meaning because you can't have really intrinsic meaning because that again would be real mind whereas somehow the consciousness isn't so much real as consciousness is an illusion so and if you think that the illusion of consciousness would naturally seem to be the consciousness <laughs> the consciousness of an illusion, uh, you just mustn't think about that. So, so there's you know, a real problem. But with, with, um, with Dennett, uh, so what Searle, uh, he created this thought experiment called the Chinese Room, in which it's not a computer, it's just a person who therefore has the full complement of mental characteristics. You don't have to ask where they come from or not. And he becomes the center of a system of translation. See, I mean, you can expand this to the large language model ultimately, but at the moment, just uh, what happens is he speaks no Chinese, he reads no Chinese, but he has been, he has learned a set of rules, an absolutely infallible set of protocols so that when certain things are, uh, are, uh, passed through one the slot of a door in Chinese, uh, he has a, 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 a perfectly worked out system for then replying to this with other Chi uh, other Chinese ideograms that are the answer to the question, presumably, or that are the function that the the ideograms are supposed to accomplish. At no point does he possess an understanding of what any of it means but he has the syntactical functions in place that allow him to run the program. And Searle just points out there's no way that you ever get from, from that process, of what's, whether you want to call it stimulus response or more translating data into behavior, there's never going to be a logical connection between that and an act of understanding, a semantic understanding. Well, this is a very controversial argument in many ways, but it seems to be it's correct that, that, that you can't that syntax can't ge generate semantics. That the meanings have to come first. It can never arise from, and uh, even a computer possessed of that syntax never actually is doing what we would think of as thought. But. Searle then realized correctly that even that argument was, was insufficient because a computer not only possesses no semantics, I mean, it doesn't even possess the syntax. That's, that, that's an illusion. Syntax and semantics are really inseparable in a sense. The computer doesn't even have uh, rules that it follows. All that goes on in a computer, and this is true even with large language models, is that a series of notations allow the computer to do things that intending minds that program and use the computer understand. That all that exists in the computer is, well, usually binary notation. Not only is there no semantics there, there's no syntax there. 
There's certainly no realm of symbolic thought. Now, so the notion that what goes on in a computer uh, is called functionalism, the notion that that's what thought is, uh, starts from an absurd premise, which is that language and meaning and thought arise from a physical basis that is somehow syntactical. But in fact, this is completely to reverse the order of real causality. In the real world, this is an all semantic, syntactic, all linguistic usage is a top-down hierarchy of meaning. It always, it, whatever, whatever we think of as thought, the content that we want to impo impose on the computer or see in the computer, is not actually there. It's always only in the mind already where it always was, the mind that wrote the software, the mind that uses the computer, the mind that looks at the computer and says, oh, that's someone else. Um, the very structure of language is irreducible to physical functions, and so functionalism itself is a meaningless claim. It's, it's precluded not simply by the nature of computers, not simply by the nature of code, but by the intrinsic nature of what language is. And this can be demonstrated in any number of ways as well that simply have to do with structural linguistics and, and, and what is going on in, in, when we look at language. Uh, and this is maybe a controversial claim that I make in the book, is that language cannot have evolved. We can have evolved, I mean, creatures can, evolve, can have evolved to become progressively more capable of language. But language itself, like consciousness, was always already there hmm. in some sense. Top down. Yeah. Well, there's a lot in that. I just want to play it back um, to make sure I understand it. You can't play it back because thought is not a functional software. I've just, okay. I think it's appropriate yeah. to talk about a cartoon at this stage. Uh, yeah. It's, it's uh, one of my favorite cartoons. Um, the car's broken down. It's pouring with rain. It's got a flat tire. Dad's outside trying to change the flat tire. And he's got two of his bratty kids in the car who are giving him advice through the window. And he looks up and says, I cannot press the rewind button, this is life. Right. Um, but if I could just um, summarize what I think I've heard, because I've heard the Chinese room story twice, and I think I've absorbed it a bit better this second time. I think it's a really great thought experiment that there's a person in a room through some mechanism, they, they have zero understanding of Chinese, zero understanding of Chinese, but somehow or other, they have some, there's some system whereby every single little letter that comes to them by an instruction without understanding anything about it, they can turn into a Chinese response back. Right, so data input, output. Because data. that, just very simply, that, that's Dan inside of Ultimately, it's just everything can be reduced to input and output, and everything that seems like intrinsic intention or consciousness is simply uh, an effect of, of that function. That function, and, right. and that's functionalism. Yeah. 
And so, for instance, the, uh, the input could say something like, um, I want you to shoot yourself, um, or the input could say something like, I want you to pour yourself a glass of water. The person would respond exactly the same way to both of those yeah. um, uh, with zero, they have zero understanding of what it means. And what you're saying is, and is that uh, this illustrates the fact that this input-output data model is not what thinking is about. That, that person in the room is like a computer, um, but we do way more than that every, every second of the day. Now, the, the standard argument against the Chinese room argument was, uh, well, of course, uh, you, you've, uh, you, you've put a man in a room, you've, you've already loaded the dice in the sense that you're uh, locating mental uh, the, 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 the mentality in that subject and saying, well, he doesn't understand what he's doing. But the whole point of functionalism is to say that the system as a whole understands. So you, you mustn't think, you mustn't, you, you've created, or you've already created a Cartesian fiction, a ghost in the machine, though he's not a ghost. Well, he might be. You could, you could do it that way. You just have to be a ghost who can move things in and out of slots. But um, a poltergeist, uh, an enterprising poltergeist. But um, that's why the, the second layer of the argument is necessary to say, well, wait a minute. Um, it, the Chinese room is a very good argument because it shows there's a disjunction. But, but uh, already the argument of the functionalists to say, well, we say, yeah, but even understanding is only an illusion anyway. Consciousness is an illusion, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, I mean, the, the argument is already preposterous anyway that functionalism is making. I mean, you have to buy into the notion that somehow consciousness can be an illusion. It's simply a, a sort of uh, act of internal mental proprioception, self and, that it's, and what it is is it's part of a function that kind, I mean, Searle said in one of his few moments of, of asperity that, you know, if you believe in functionalism, you don't need a counter-argument, you need therapy. <laughs> and I believe that's, well, probably true. I mean, uh, is a, and, uh, but uh, it, you have to make the, the second argument say, but even then, the syntax, the notion that you could have a set of rules that, that already are an understanding of a, this sign leads to that sign. That's not what goes on in a computer. There's no act of understanding there, and there are no signs in a computer. Yeah, so... Uh, there, there are just the binary notations that for us we use in order to represent signs, functions, input, output, data. And it's curious the degree to which you have to argue this, but it should be obvious that what's going on is the layers of causality there very quickly take leave of the physical plane. Yeah. yeah. There, once you get past that, the, the syntax, the semantics, the realm of symbolic thought, the intentionality, all of that happens not in a physical space, but in a hermeneutical space, a space of interpretation that exists only in a mind that's always already there. Otherwise, nothing goes on in a computer. And, and if and there were not a mind there, it could, it could produce all these functions. There would be no illusion of thought. Yeah, and what you're beginning to move into now, which we'll, we'll go on to, and then that'll be our second final part, but it, 
It's we're engaged in a mystery. I loved what you said, that language pre-exists us. Perhaps we evolved into it, but language did not evolve. We're, we're swimming in something bigger than us, even, well not even, just the wonder of syntax. Uh, my mind being able to connect sentences within sentences, cases and flow, what you call rules. This is an absolute mystery. It's not programmed into a computer. And as you say, once you go up a little bit, you're really hitting mystery. Yeah. And hence it's a top-down system that we've inherited like a gift rather than something that we evolved. But once you, once you realize that, then suddenly there's a kind of virtue in the error of Narcissus if you can step back from it and, and look at it as inverted. Because at that point you realize just as is the case in a computer, so it is with the brain. You're never going to be able to reduce that hermeneutical level of operation or of understanding and of consciousness, which and we haven't even talked about it, consists in all sorts of features that are contrary to the mechanistic narrative. Never going to be able to reduce that simply to the fact of, of electrochemical physiological impulses. And this, I mean, this is simple enough anyway. I mean, we know that you've, uh, syllogism, I mean, what, what um, the mechanical narrative tells us is that thinking is a series of elect electrochemical events that then we represent as a series of logical entailments. Does that make sense? I mean, I mean, if a Socrates, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. Well, those connections are all logical, semantic, intentional. That's radically different from mechanical connections. Uh, it's not the case that the premise all men are mortal and the premise Socrates is a man are connected to one another simply biochemically, not physically. They're not simply two physical events. Or by they, force or motion or yeah, something? Force, motion, quantity. Uh, they are, they're connected to one another purely by their semantic content. By and, logic. And a logic, in, uh, a logic that, that has a, a final cause. A and that final cause, of course, the conclusion, uh, Socrates is mortal, is a, is a logical entailment. It's not, it's not the result of, of uh, you know, a catalytic uh, Re reaction in, in, the, in this group of neurons. Yeah, so what binds the syllogism together is nothing like what binds uh, uh, mechanical, yeah, gravity. Yeah, so, or so we already know this. And again, as a, in his defense, Dennett would say, no, of course not, because that all happens at the level of the code and the software. But even that, he's, he wants to reduce to basically syntactical functions of input and output that we only then secondarily perceive as having logical uh, content. Yeah. Well, what I'd like to finish by is by moving on to the very power, I mean, the corollary of what you're saying is that thought is something that we, we walked into. It's like a big gift we're part of, uh, although to some extent it's happening inside my mind, I'm participating in something way bigger than me. Uh, it is something spiritual and something that you use the phrase of uh, something that's incommensurable and I'd just like to finish on that um, 
A nice segue into it is a comment by Douglas Hofstadter. I don't like everything he says, but I, I like this. Each new step towards artificial intelligence, rather than producing something which everyone agrees is real intelligence, merely reveals what real intelligence is not. Yeah. And, and I think yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a fair claim. But one point as a segue into this finishing point is that we are not going now to dualism. I think that's, a lot of people would say, oh yeah, okay, so you've now got, you're arguing that we've got a spirit that lives inside our bodies like water lives inside a glass. And that is not either the answer. No, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's just, this, it's just an earlier stage of the, uh, of, of, of the same error of imagining that there could be any, there, that in any sense, nature is mechanistic uh, you know, or that life is mechanistic. I don't believe that we can uh, reduce biology to chemistry. I doubt we can actually fully reduce the laws of chemistry to the laws of physics. Um, but um, whatever the case, what I'm not arguing is, is for what's called substance dualism. I think that's absurd. I, I think that all of life, everything that lives is a participation. And again, this is why I like the Aristotelian language in principle. The shape of reality really is mental, you know, the shape of the, at, at its ground, the structure of everything that is, and especially everything that lives, is always already has the structure of thought. And that's why thought and world can be each be transparent to one another, why mind and world. Uh, that's a different set of arguments. Uh, yeah. you know, we could take, you know. We'll, we'll get onto some of that we'll tomorrow. Get some of that. But uh, yeah, no, I definitely, uh, every aspect of the modern picture, I think, uh, in this regard, uh, should be rejected. I mean, the modern metaphysics that came from what otherwise, you know, was at times a fruitful act of methodological bracketing never again entirely sufficient. It's never, I have to emphasize this, this is something that more and more biology has acknowledged and philosophers of life science have acknowledged is the inductive method and mechanical reductionism have been ghastly failures in understanding life systems. And that's why systems biology, and for more than 70 or 80 years, has been reinserting intentionality and cognitive structure into the into the systems of life, going back, I suppose, to really uh, Barbara McClintock's discovery of transposable elements and the degree to which cells edit their own genome and things. I realize that something's going on here that's not that's not reducible to the kind of mechanistic theory of life that, say, someone like. Richard Dawkins or Jerry Coyne clings to, even though it's 80 years out of date. So, yeah. it, it, we've, we've begun talking about our mind and our thought, but in order to accept, understand that we're swimming in thought, in fact, the cosmos is a thought we're swimming in an idea. Um, now it looks like this idea of the supremacy of mind and thought as structuring everything actually goes out into all of nature. Yeah, and we'll come back to that tomorrow. But in closing, I would like to just 
uh, ask you, I mean, one of the phrases you, you use is that, that our mind, the functions of our mind has various incommensurable qualities. They're just totally impossible that they could ever be reduced to any kind of functionalism of, be it computerization, be it biomechanical. And obviously we would say, as we'll move on tomorrow, these are participant, some participation we have in the divine mind. Um, and I'd love you just to mention you know, some of the things, the words that I've heard, intent, consciousness, synthesis. Could you just characterise some of those incommensurable qualities? Yeah, I, I, and um, although it would take a long time to explain why each one of them is, uh, is clearly incommensurable with physical process, but yeah, I, I, it's, it's fairly clear because of the ones that philosophy of mind has been struggling with, and in the case of someone like Dennett, or someone like Alex Rosenberg, another radical reductionist who tried to explain away. And let me just say before I, I list these, that in, in science and philosophy, I take it to be an infallible rule of good practice, that if you have a phenomenon you're trying to explain and you, and you devise a theory to explain it, but that the phenomenon refuses to fit to the theory, you eliminate the theory. In philosophy of mind, no, you eliminate the phenomenon. If the theory is 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 something you, you is is something you have to cling to, Alex Rosenberg spends fifty pages in his Atheist Guide to Reality, arguing that intrinsic intentionality is impossible, which would mean that saying intrinsic intentionality is impossible is a is an intrinsically impossible thing to do. If you mean actually. You would think, and he makes arguments that I would make, and then at the end of it, he instead of saying, "Well, obviously the physical reductionism that I favor doesn't work," he says, "Well, obviously, intrinsic intentionality can't be real. Nothing can be about anything else. You cannot have a thought about Paris. I think about Paris all the time. <laughs> it's my my great dream, but." So yeah, um, consciousness is the most obvious. That is simply, why do we have reflective first-person experience in a world that supposedly consists entirely in third-person third mechanical events? Unity of consciousness. I mean, that, that, we, that we perceive things under a unity when normally it would be impossible to achieve the kind of unity that phenomenologically we can designate uh, and when we examine our conscious experience within a physical system, which always must consist in composites of composites of composites ad infinitum, um, intentionality having a purpose that is that the, a purpose that actually determines real activity, when in fact, according to mechanical principles, uh, activity is entire all real action is is the result of antecedent physical forces that are determined only by antecedent physical forces. So if I think, you know, my intention, I decided to come here tonight and have this conversation, I decided, or I, may, I got on a plane in order to fly to Sydney from Vancouver, which, to which I'd flown from Chicago, in order, among other things, to have this conversation and to meet a koala the latter being the more important spiritually, but the former being how I got it paid for. Um, 
that in fact that's not what's happening. All of those events uh, are are the uh, are the results not of either consecutive logic or real intrinsic intention, but simply a succession of physical forces, events, and eventualities over which I could uh, over that I then laterally represent to myself my non-existent self using my intentional, non-intentional powers of representation which don't really exist to inform my non-existent consciousness of Your my non-existent <laughs> because I have proposed using my non-existent intentionality to understand in my non-existent consciousness. Okay. Um, also, rationality in the sense that just, just the consecutive logic can, can lead to a conclusion that leads to a result. Um, you know, again, the, the, syllog, the syllogism uh, uh, should, not, uh, should not follow from purely mechanical processes. It could only follow, even in a computer, if it were programmed in by a consciousness that already exists. Um, subjectivity as self-reflective. If you think about it, I mean, this is something that Indian thought understood centuries before Western philosophy. Uh, we have long, I mean, honorable Greek and Greco-Roman and then later medieval thinking about the structure of knowledge, uh, but it's not really until uh, and, and epistemology and things like that. But it's not until the 15th century, starting with, I would say, Nicholas of Cusa and, and others, uh, but then really not until the 19th century with figures like Brentano uh, and then in the 20th with Husserl that Western thought began thinking about consciousness as self-reflective. That is, when, you, when you're conscious of something, in order to be conscious of it, you are always simultaneously conscious of being conscious. Why is that important? Because consciousness rests upon consciousness. You can try to trace it back to a physical source, but it leads to an infinite regress. This is actually uh, quite an issue in philosophy of mind. And philosophers are, well, all right. Yes, there must be consciousness of consciousness in order for there to be consciousness. You must be aware, it must be reflected. But this is just a higher order experience or a higher order thought or it's a higher order something that itself only becomes conscious of being conscious when it is subject to a yet higher order experience. Well, if you think about that, that's an infinite regress. Unless subject to, unless you don't really have to get to a physical ground because the experience of I think is a primordial reality upon which everything else is consequent. This argument appears in Indian thought as like 400 years before Christianity, mostly because of debates the, with Buddhists and later Vedantic philosophers and is, reaches a very high pitch of sophistication in ninth century India. But anyway, that's an excursus. But the structure of subjectivity itself, uh, the more you examine it, the more mysterious of you. Not just that you're conscious, but what the structure of consciousness is, the degree to which it seems that it cannot rest upon anything other than consciousness. It turtles all the way down, but sublimely intelligent turtles. Yeah. Well, the power, the intrigue for me, in meditating on these things and discussing these things 
is that it leads to this, uh, what for the patristics was the image of God, the rational mind. And I think you said, of all that you said tonight, the thing that I suppose most struck me is that language and thought is top down. We're swimming in it. It's not an individuated thing. It's not just my thought. I'm participating. And I'm participating in mysterious things that are irreducible. And it, that's why I liked reading out The Long-Legged Fly. I mean, the mind moving on silence. You know, we all know what it's like to be in a, in a reverie, which Caesar was in or Michelangelo. We all know what that's like every day of our lives, but we can't put words around it. We try. Well, I mean, the good thing, uh, the, why that's a very apt poem to begin with is what's not going on is simply the translation of data into behavior. That he's, you know, he's thinking into thought, it's real, it has to be reflection. Yes. You know? um, and, and that there is a substrate of silence in thought. It's, it's not digital chatter. There's a place uh, in, the, in the very experience of thought, again, which I would call the structure of, well, of subjectivity, uh, in, in which uh, something prior to its expression always has to be presumed, something of the, of the nature of consciousness prior to its outward expression always already dwells there in an absolute, you could call it a silence or an absolute reflectivity that's not an object but always just pure subject, not in the Cartesian sense but in the sense of pure thought, consciousness, being, consciousness, bliss. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, they, each of those three, and I love them because one's you know, enterprise and war, one's dance, and one's sculpture or painting. But it's a reverie that's almost pre-articulate. Um, and we all know what that's like. You, go, you left us with, with, with uh, some powerful categories of which intentionality was critical and consciousness and synthesis, the idea that, you know, how we, how we unify things, that are some of the qualities of mind that not just are they incommensurable to brain, let's go on to the positive side, they are participations in the divine mind. Um, everyone in this room knew what you meant, what we meant when we talked about intention. It's not an individual thing we've individually thought up where we seem to be swimming in something bigger than ourselves the divine mind and tomorrow um, when we'll, we'll move on to investigate uh, the implications of that for what it means to be a human being um, but certainly uh, the christian project has um, long and not just the christian project but philosophically claimed something where we are participating in something mysterious that's bigger than us and we'll get more shape on that tomorrow. So I think that's a good place to finish tonight. Anything else you'd like to say, David, or is it run out of gas? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm always ready to talk. Um, you know, if, if I can make myself the center of attention. I'm, um, it's just one last point I want to make, that issue of, uh, of infinite regress. Um, 
for instance, I mentioned unity of consciousness, the unity of apprehension. Dennett is, is famous for arguing that no, this doesn't exist. This is just a narrative that we tell ourselves afterwards. And that really, the, he has this notion of multiple drafts of reality in which um, you know, different data streams are spilling over one another and contradicting one another and correcting one another. And then afterwards, we narrate for ourselves a unified experience. But what you, you have to notice there is, of course, you can, to do, in order to narrate it as a unified experience and convince yourself, you can only do that from a position of unified apprehension. That it always, every time one of these explanations appears, and Daniel Dennett is brilliant at this. I mean, he's brilliantly stupid for a man who's so intelligent. He might, in fact, be the stupidest intelligent man I've ever met uh, because of his commitments. It always presumes what it's trying to explain away. It has to. You know, as we say, illusion of consciousness obviously presumes a consciousness of the illusion. In this case, unity. Whenever you, uh, you, you know, you, you can't represent multiplicity to yourself as a unity except from a position of unity. Whenever you hear any of these arguments, any materialist reductions, always look for the infinite regress. It will always be there, always. Uh, because physicalism cannot explain the mind. Yeah, and when you speak of unity, that made me think of Gregory of Nyssa's wonderful chapter in On the Making of Humanity where he, he pursues the metaphor of the mind as a marketplace with many doorways that come into a central uh, arena, but the mind is synthesizing them into one thing. Um, he uses the simple example, I think, of eating a meal whilst I might be getting separate inputs in terms of taste and texture. My mind, it's one meal. Uh, we, we do not we do not aggregate my, the enjoyment of the meal. You're always thinking about food. I know that, David, but... <sighs> or wine. Um, and I think that... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can tell I think, you stories. So. Yeah, that, David. Okay, sorry. I, I think that... <laughs> no, we've got to be serious, David. I think... I, uh, yeah, um, Deadly serious. I know you are. I think pointing ahead to tomorrow, um, intention is something that we will begin with tomorrow. Uh, I think you've mentioned another one which is very, very powerful um, and it'll play out throughout all tomorrow, but I just want to leave it with everybody, which is the, the word you used was unity. There's something in mind that is drawing all things towards a unity. And um, we all know what that's like. I mean, I, I keep wondering if you take a child, how on earth a child gets the word tree to cover such a multiplicity of phenomenon? I mean, the treeness is not out there. I mean, the child is at one level, perhaps seeing billions of pixels or whatever, but, the, but who taught a child the unity of tree? So there's something vital in this idea of unity, which you don't have to think very long to go to Ephesians 1 verse 10 
um, you know, where all things will be recapitulated and unified in Christ. And, and you don't have to go very far to think of this intellectual unity becoming a moral unity and the idea of peacemaking and synthesis and shalom, uh, which are, um, we, we won't investigate all of those things tomorrow, but we'll move on to that, the divine, the divine origins of the soul and the mind. So thanks for putting up with uh, the alarms. Hope you enjoyed tonight and, uh, and tomorrow. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pursue uh, this further. If you didn't get the um, run sheet for tomorrow, it'll be outside as uh, several books. And David, I, I wrote a book. It's, yeah, no, no one, yeah, they no want your book, but uh, I, I'd offer to sign it, but I don't think anyone would be interested. And, we can, and we've got a few books there by Nicholas of Cuser or Carl Barth. I don't think they can sign them either because they're dead. Um, but you, I have their power of attorney. <laughs> okay, well, you, you sign them. Um, uh, my book was a gift to my wife. Um, I wrote her on her 50th birthday, 50 meditations. I thought that would be a great idea. Uh, I was still working at the time, so once I got past about 25, they got shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, <laughs> and then she's always criticising me for never publishing anything or writing anything. Or not, I write stuff, I just never publish it. But so I thought, wow, when she, for her 70th birthday, I thought this will be a great present. I'll actually, public, I'll actually tidy up these 50 and expand them and give it to her as a gift. And that's what I did. So it's a gift to her, but if anyone else would like to uh, look over the shoulder, that's what it is, Breakfast with Jesus. And my books are a gift to the world. <laughs> so. They are a gift to the world, David. Thank you. Good night.